let's stand together as Yana comes this morning to read our scripture for us. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on the altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles, and crushed the idols to powder, and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord from Second Chronicles uh, 34, 1 to 7. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, believe it or not, this morning we come to the end of our Summer of Kings. And as I look back on these last several... Did I hear an amen right there? I might have heard an amen. <laughs> as I look back on these several months, I think, you know, if we really were going to do this in detail, we needed to do a year of kings, but I'm not sure we would have made it through a year of kings. And so this morning we come to the end of our summer of kings. And I want you to think back with me just for a minute about who in your mind was the best king... And who in your mind was the worst king of those that we've looked at? And of course, in terms of the best kings, it's easy to start with David. David was a man after God's own heart. And so often when we hear that one of these kings did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, we'll also hear as his father David did. So David's a great example. But we've also seen others like Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, great kings who who followed the Lord and did what was right in his eyes. And this morning we're going to talk about my favorite of all the kings, Josiah. So in the midst of this difficult, tumultuous, long period of the kings of Israel and Judah, there were some bright spots. But of course there were also many dark spots. And as you think about who was the worst of the kings we've talked about, of course many will say Ahab. And many times we'll say Ahab because of the woman he married, Jezebel. But then, of course, there was Ahaz, who was an evil king of Judah. And we remember that Ahaz was not only one who, who was worshiping gods like Baal and goddesses like Asherah and setting up idols to all these gods of other nations and, and commanding the people to worship them, but Ahaz was also the one who closed up the doors of the Lord's temple and said, you can't go in. Nobody will worship Yahweh in Judah, in Jerusalem, even in the temple anymore. We're going to worship these other gods. And so to that point in the story, the Bible actually said Ahaz was the worst of the kings of Judah that we had seen. But then, of course, 
as we talk about the great King Josiah here in just a moment, his grandfather Manasseh has to be on that list of the most evil of the kings because Manasseh is not only one who, who committed those same sins, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, worshiping Baal and Asherah and the starry hosts and setting up the, the idols and, and the shrines and the high places to, to these other gods of the other nations. He, he also sacrificed his own children in the fire in the valley of, of Hinnom. Manasseh did all these terrible things that, that some of the other kings had done, but, but what he did in the temple was the worst. Because rather than, than closing the temple like Ahaz had done, Manasseh kept the temple open like his, his father Hezekiah had opened it, but he instead brought all of those idols and altars inside. So rather than worshiping Yahweh in his house, the place where God said, my name will forever be worshiped in this place. In this place, it's my name that will forever be praised. Manasseh was worshiping Baal, making his own Asherah poles outside and then bringing them into the temple and thus profaning the house of the Lord, profaning the covenant like no other king in Judah had ever done. And this was the son of Hezekiah. And you think, Hezekiah was such an amazing king. How did his son miss the mark so badly? And as the grandfather of Josiah, certainly Josiah would be set up to fail if he followed his example. As we talked about Manasseh for a moment, and those weren't highlights, those were lowlights of his kingship. Here's a summary statement we have about his reign. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end, besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit, so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the strange thing about Manasseh's story is that near the end, he was carried off as a prisoner to Babylon. Manasseh actually called on the Lord, asked for forgiveness, was set free. He came back to Jerusalem and began to try to set things right. But in terms of the consequences that would then be passed on to the next generation, unfortunately, most of Manasseh's sins, the, the deeds had already been done. His son Amon, who would follow, who would be Josiah's father, also did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you'll notice on our little chart that Amon's reign wasn't very long. Because what happens when you are an evil king who follows an evil king after a while, everyone you've surrounded yourself with is also practicing evil. And as they say, there is no honor among thieves. Amon was assassinated by his own officials just two years into his reign. And thus we come to Josiah, who becomes the young king at the ripe old age of eight years old when he took the throne in Judah. Second Chronicles tells us that the young king Josiah became king at eight. He reigned for 31 years until he was 39. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And, and as we come to the end of this series, isn't that a beautiful phrase that we wish we saw more often? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Even more so, he did not turn away from it to the right or to the left. Instead, he lived out the legacy of his father, David, beginning even as a very young man. We're told that it was when Josiah was 16 years old that he began to seek the God of his father David. Neither Kings nor Chronicles tells us how he learned about the legacy of faith 
that should have been passed on to him. Perhaps it was one of the prophets in the king's court. Perhaps it was an old, wise person who had somehow been connected to his great-grandfather, Hezekiah, in the past. But somehow, Josiah learned that as God's king in Jerusalem, reigning over his people in Judah with the temple right across the street from the palace, this is a place where God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is to be worshipped. And at 16 years old, young King Josiah began to follow after the ways of the Lord, which I hope is an encouragement to the boys and girls in the room, to the teenagers in the room, that your age does not dictate whether or not you can do great things through the Lord. Josiah was eight. Imagine that responsibility of being given the throne at that age in, in such evil days. But then at 16, to, to have the courage to follow the leadership of the Lord's Spirit and to say, I'm going to be different than my father. I'm going to be different than my grandfather. I'm going to stand on the principles that the God we're supposed to be worshiping has laid out and lead the people as a 16-year-old young man to do the same thing. Doesn't matter if you're a teen. Doesn't matter if you're a child. You can be a light in the darkness around you. And Josiah is a fantastic example of this. And I think one of the reasons that he is my favorite of the kings is because I first read this story when I was around 16. And it spoke so personally to my life. And I'm going to share with you just a little bit how in, in a moment. But I want to, before we do that, just, just point out a few of the things that, that made Josiah stand out as he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. At 20 years old, he began to purge Jerusalem of all of those high places, altars to Baal, Asherah poles, and idols. And I love the way Josiah did, did it. He didn't just remove them, he destroyed them. He didn't just tear down those altars of stone, but he ground them into powder, into dust. He didn't just pull down the Asherah poles, but he shredded them. If he'd have had a wood chipper, he would have put them right inside it, right? He was destroying everything completely as far as the eye could see in Judah. He tore down all of the quarters, the residences that were used by the shrine prostitutes. And then he went into the area, and, and you have to read a little bit further in Chronicles and Kings to find this, but he went into that area in the Valley of Hinnom, from which we get the word Gehenna, which we translate as hell, the place where they were sacrificing living children in fire to the god Molech. Josiah went into that place and he not only had the altars where, where children, where people were sacrificed, torn down, but he tore down the foundations of them. So that in his own words, never again in Judah or near Judah would there ever be a child sacrificed to the god Molech. Josiah meant business. I love the way one commentator said it. Josiah was nothing if not thorough. He left no stone unturned, no idol, no altar, no high place, no foundation that was not torn down. And he even went so far as to not only remove the priests of Baal and all the officials of, of Asherah, not only to remove them from their position, not only to sprinkle the dust of their altars on the graves of those who came before but Josiah decided to dig up the bones of those priests of Baal from the past and to burn their bones on the altar. It's at this point when 
I came to this part of the story at the age of 16 of Josiah's story that the Lord really spoke to my heart and encouraged me. Many of you have heard part of my story. Maybe you remember, maybe you don't. But throughout our Summer of Kings, we've talked a lot about what it, it means to be the community of faith, to be faithful as God's people. We've talked about how as God's covenant people today, the church, that we've been called to impart a legacy not only in our time, but, but for the generations that would follow, that, that maybe in the midst of our own strange and evil days, we could actually be an example for others to follow of, of, of who God is, what his character is like, what he wants us to be like as a people. I think that, that legacy of the community is such an important lesson that we've learned from our study of the kings. But there also is the call to a personal legacy, for me and for you in, in my family and in your family, for, for those who the Lord has, has placed under my leadership, he's given me charge and he's given me stewardship that I would invest in them well and lead them well. There's that call to have that kind of legacy that affects not only me and my family and my children, but my grandchildren, those who come after me. And I remember at 16 years old reading the story of Josiah, and I was struggling at that time personally because I did not come from that strong legacy of faith. I didn't really have a Hezekiah in my background. On my mom's side, I was very blessed that I did have a grandmother who read scripture to me, who prayed for me, but, but my family was not a church-going family until I was a teenager. Now, thankfully, once we started going to church, we stayed, and the Lord continued to do work in our home. But as a teenager... I started looking, and, and not so much on my mom's side, got to be real careful here, okay, but on my dad's side, on the Costanzo side, I started looking back at that legacy. By the time I was 16 years old, my dad, my biological dad, had already passed away. Most of my uncles, his brothers had passed away. My grandparents on that side had passed away. And I looked back at that legacy that had been left on that side, and all I saw was sin, idolatry, and death. All I saw in, in the Costanzo background were, were, were those Sicilians who ended up in New Jersey, and they did, using the language of the kings, evil in the eyes of the Lord in every way you can imagine. I didn't have that legacy. And I began to fear that those threads that had been running through the Costanzo family, I was going to be destined to repeat them. It's not that, that, that I didn't trust the transformation the Lord was doing in my life, it's not that I didn't believe that, that God had saved my soul and that I'd been born again and that I was headed in the right direction, but I began to think, you know, my, my dad did this, his brothers did this, my grandfather did this, and how am I not going to repeat the same sins? Then I came to the story of Josiah, and I watched the way Josiah, he didn't just take down the altars and the idols, he destroyed them. And not only that, but he replaced them with faithfulness to God. Because that's what we must do. The idols in our lives can't just be torn down. They can't just be removed. They have to be destroyed. We have to be able to say, there is nothing back there for me anymore. And I am never going back to, to worship at those places again. And I am never going to, to let those things back in my heart and back in my life. Again, there's nothing for me there. But the idols, the altars, they also have to be replaced they have to be replaced with faithfulness to God. And as I watched and read this story, how Josiah dug up the bones of those who came before him and said, 
I'm not just thinking about the present. I'm not just trusting God for the future, but I'm going to dig out, root out those ugly things from the past that were a part of my family, that were a part of the community of faith, and I'm going to call them out. I'm going to put those bones on the altar, and I'm going to burn them so that even though it's uncomfortable, even though there are things in our past, even as a community that we might be ashamed of, embarrassed about, wish that people would just forget about it, not bring it up, sweep them under the rug. Sometimes we have to do that hard work of digging up the bones and burning them. And when I saw Josiah do that, and when I read on as he replaced those idols in his own heart and life with faithfulness to God, but also as he began to impart that kind of faithfulness into the community and into his family, I said, that's going to be my legacy. That legacy of doing evil in the eyes of the Lord that could have come to me through my father's side of our family tree, it ends with him. And with me, things are going to be different. It's not just going to be a transformation of my heart, but this is going to impact my children and my children's children. And from this day forward, this Costanzo family is going to say Jesus is Lord. Now, little did I know at 16, it's funny how God works, that a bonus was coming my way, that I was going to marry into a family that has such an incredible legacy of faith. So that my children, if you know about my family, they, yes, they do have my legacy. They have the, the amazing transformation that the Lord brought to me as a teenager and to our home. But, but through my wife's side of the family, those roots of faith run deep. And they continue to run through my family. And that's the legacy that I believe we will leave behind. And we will continue. The faithfulness that God has shown to our family the idols that he took out of my life and replaced with faithfulness to him and the commitment that I've made that my life will be a long trajectory of faithfulness in the right direction that prayerfully will be passed on to my children and my children's children. Josiah, the young king, replaced all of that evil and sin with faithfulness to God. And then as we continue just a little bit in his story, there's this amazing moment that happens, and both Chronicles and Kings record it, but I love this little snapshot in 2 Kings 22 when they're restoring the inside of the temple that had been destroyed, and, and they've removed those idols, and they're sort of digging out the rubble, and they find a book. And I love this little passage. Then, 2 Kings 22, starting in verse 10, then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king What was he reading? They had found the book of the law of the lord. They'd found the torah Genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy And as the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes And he gave these orders Go and inquire of the lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us, because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book, and they have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. This is an amazing moment where, yes, Josiah has already felt that conviction that he needs to be a godly man 
and a godly leader and a godly king. He is already in the process of restoring true worship to Yahweh in Judah. But when the book of the law is found and, and the priest begins to read it for Josiah to hear, God's word does what only God's word can do. It penetrates right to Josiah's heart. And he says, we must stop absolutely everything so that we might respond in obedience to the very words of God that we've heard. Do you believe this morning that God speaks through these words like absolutely nothing else? That God has given us through the scriptures a collection of his own words that he gave to other faithful followers of his to write them down that through generation after generation after generation he has spoken to us through this word these words like absolutely nothing else that even now all of these thousands of years later since the days of the kings the same holy spirit of god speaks to us and this word is alive and active speaking to our hearts even now the word of god speaks to us like nothing else and it's the word of God that begins to transform the community of Judah. Once Josiah hears the words of God, though again, they've already been doing some things well, he says everything comes to a full stop. Josiah says, I'm not going to be like Hezekiah, who said, well, at least there will be peace in my lifetime. At least in my own days, God will, will continue to allow us to live in peace under his word. And, and whatever problems are coming next, they'll be my kids' problems or my grandkids' problems. When Josiah hears the word of the Lord, and when he hears a word from a prophetess named Huldah, that destruction is going to come in the next generations, Josiah calls the entire community to the temple. And he says to the priests, I want you to take the law. And I want you to just start reading it out loud. And I want everybody to listen, hours upon hours, day after day, to God's word, that this would become the description of who we are again. That these words would speak into this community and speak life into us again, like they've done in the past. Why is it that even today, when we have more access and more opportunity to have this word and even beyond what Josiah ever heard speaking into our hearts under the leadership of the Holy Spirit why is it that we still turn to so many other places to give us guidance for our lives to help us interpret all of the messages we're receiving to help us navigate all of the difficulties of the strange and evil days in which we're living why do we turn to anything else instead of turning to these words first even here we see an example of how the very words of God transformed the heart of the king, but also the community, the covenant people of God. And Josiah said, as we renew this covenant, it is going to be a legacy that we would follow the Lord and keep his commands and statutes and decrees with all of our heart and soul to obey the words of the covenant that are written in this book. And as Josiah read and heard books like Deuteronomy, which says, I, I don't want you to just impress this on your own heart, but I want you to impress it on your children and on your children's children. Josiah said, bring everybody to the temple to hear the word. Bring the kids, bring the adolescents, bring the parents, the grandparents, the older, the older folks, bring everybody 
to hear the word of God, that together, once again, we would be God's covenant people. And then as they were reading through the stories of Exodus, Josiah realized it had been a long time since they had celebrated the most important feast. The most important festival of thanksgiving to God was the Passover. And Josiah is reading these stories again in Exodus and through the law, and he says, when was the last time that together the community gave thanks for God's deliverance from Egypt? And so they gathered together a Passover feast, and I love the way 2 Chronicles 35 describes it. The Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of Samuel. We're talking about the very beginning of this series, where it all began. Since the days of Samuel, they had not celebrated the Passover like this. None of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah, with the priests, the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were there with the people of Jerusalem, and all this was celebrated in the 18th year of Josiah's reign. Do you see what Josiah was trying to do? As he read it in the word of God, he wanted to put it into practice. We're supposed to have a party. We're supposed to have a feast. Then why aren't we? We're supposed to be impressing these commands on our children and our children's children. Why aren't we? We're supposed to be talking about these words from God at when we sit and when we rise, when we walk along the road, when we go into our homes, when we enter our fields and do our work. Why aren't we? And Josiah has committed his heart to not only follow God faithfully himself, but to rebuild a faithful community of people who were following God's word closely together. Sadly, Josiah died as a young king, 39 years old. He was killed in battle against the Egyptians. And he was so loved among the people that 2 Chronicles 35 says the, the prophet Jeremiah himself composed laments for Josiah, the fallen king. And they continued to be sung by male and female singers for generations to come. I mean, how, how could the people go wrong after this? Finally, they have the king that they've needed. Finally, a king is willing to step up and do the hard work of not only replacing the idols with faithfulness to God, but destroying them completely. Not only did Josiah follow God faithfully in his own heart, but he imparted God's word in a way to the entire community that it should have been passed down as a legacy. But unfortunately, like many of the other heirs that we've seen in our study of the kings, Josiah's children did not carry that legacy forward. As we finally come to the end of our summer of kings, I wish there were a happy ending, but there is not. When we move from Josiah down through his children, his sons who would become the king, all the way to his son Zedekiah, the end is not a good one. The end is captivity, it's death, it's destruction, it's Jerusalem, Jerusalem and the temple laid in ruins. But just for a moment, if you'll allow me to have what I'll call a nerd moment, okay? One of the questions that... It, that's easy to ask as you go through these stories is when was all of this written down? Because we're, we're covering such a long period of time and, and when you read 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles together, for example, it's like there's more information added. So, 
So it's hard to picture, did one person sit and write this down? How was all of this composed? And, and the, the simple answer to that is it was probably composed by multiple people over a long period of time, each writing in whatever season of life they were in and period of the kings they were in. But I imagine at this part of the story, when Josiah's sons take over the throne and all of this be, begins to come to an end, I imagine that the person who was writing down these stories in this very moment, sort of like a scene in The Lord of the Rings. Okay, so here's your nerd moment. Are you ready? This is in, in the books, and if you've seen the movies, it's in the movies. Do you remember that scene in The Fellowship of the Ring when they go into the mines of Moria, and they go into the tomb of Balin, and they see the, the, skelet, the, the skeleton, the remains of that dwarf who was actually writing in the book, and the very last words that he's writing, sort of scribbling off the page, says, they are coming. You remember that moment? In the, some of you remember. Okay, nerd moment is over now. I imagine this part of the story, the end, the scribe, whoever was writing this part of the story down, it's like his last words are, they are coming, and they are the Babylonians. This is when the Babylonians, who now have become the big kid on the block, are going to come into Jerusalem, and what they bring with them is awful in the, its execution. Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, his next son, Jehoiakim, both did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As did his grandson, Jehoiakim, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As did Zedekiah, who was also Josiah's son, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And all through the midst of this last period, as, the, as each king is losing just a little bit more of the kingdom of Judah to the mighty empire of Babylon, there is a prophet still in the midst. It's a prophet whose name we've already mentioned. It's a prophet who gets one of the biggest books in the entire Bible, Jeremiah. And even in the worst and the evilest days near the end of the stories of the kings, Jeremiah is saying to them, this is what the Lord says. If you will only repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you will utter worthy, not worthless words, I will save you from the, the hands of the wicked, and I will deliver you from the grasp of the cruel. This very passage comes as Jeremiah says, it's the sins of Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, that are leading to the destruction that is coming. The consequences are about to be faced. But even still, if the people would only repent... And utter worthy, not worthless words to God. He would, he would save them. He would deliver them. He would restore them. But just like so many of the other generations we've seen through this study, the kings did not listen. The people did not listen. And when we come to the final king of Judah, Zedekiah, Judah falls to Babylon. Most of the people are carried off to Babylon, which means they're no longer in their land. They no longer have any freedom. They no longer even have a king to rule over them. Jerusalem is destroyed. Most of it is burned, including the Lord's temple and all of the items inside that had been used to worship him. And with all of this, Judah went into captivity and away from her land. 
and all of God's people ended up in places they never imagined they would find themselves. Some were in the hands of Assyria. Some were in the hands of Babylon. Soon they'd be transferred to Persia. And the temple would not be rebuilt again for several generations until the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's no wonder as we read to the end of Chronicles and Kings that it feels like an ending. Because the people of God had to have imagined this was it. It's over. We've lost our chance. There's no hope left. God's covenant people are going to be destroyed. God is going to abandon us forever. This is, in fact, the end. But as we sit here today worshiping in South Tulsa Baptist Church, we know the truth, right? That this isn't the end of the story. That God had not abandoned his covenant. That God had not abandoned his people. And that there was yet to be one king in Israel who would finally be what the people had been praying for from the very beginning. We sit here today knowing, believing that the end of this story is not the bad news, but it's the good news because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so as we come to the end of our long summer of kings, as we walk away from here this morning, I want to ask just a couple of questions to us to make sure we've learned the lessons we need to learn. Here's the first one. Really, this is less of a question and more of a final word that I hope we've learned. If we look to anyone else but God as our true king, we will fail. He alone is worthy of our worship because he alone is God, and anything else is idolatry. You would be right if you were thinking to yourself, you could have just told us this the very first week, and that's all we really needed to know. Because is this not what God said to Samuel, through Samuel, at the very beginning? If you are looking to anyone else to be your true king, to put your faith in, you are going to be sorely disappointed, and you're not going to like the way the story is going to end. God had told his people this in Deuteronomy. The words that Josiah had come across. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great God, mighty and awesome. He's not like the kings of the earth. He shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. This is what God is truly like. The second final word is for we who are followers of Christ, new covenant people. The new covenant community who know and believe and are called to live as if our citizenship in the kingdom of God is our highest allegiance. And as Christians, only Christ is our true king because he is the king of kings. And again, anything else, anyone else that we hold up as our true king, any other kingdom to which we pledge allegiance above his kingdom, anything else is idolatry. We are citizens in the kingdom of God first, and in that kingdom, Jesus Christ is our true king. Can I get an amen, please, brothers and sisters? Jesus said this very thing in John 18. As he stood before Pontius Pilate, with the opportunity to present the case to spare his physical life, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But no, my kingdom is from another place. 
And the final word of good news I have for us this morning and at the end of our Summer of Kings is that the King of Kings is on the throne. And the end of the scripture that we have, that God has given us, the book of Revelation, begins with that promise and that reminder. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.